a problem was discovered with some long-haul truckers who were transporting food in refrigerated trucks over a long distance. They, they maybe went hundreds or even thousand miles or so. And, and you go on there, and, and your truck is full of all this fresh food, but then you come back empty, right? Anyone a long-haul trucker here? No one? Used to be. So we're not, I'm not picking on you, Sharon, okay? Just so you know this here. So they don't like to come back with an empty truck, right? Right. So these refrigerated trucks started hauling garbage back to landfills that had open space because they wanted to make some extra money, right? Well, according to the truckers, garbage is a dream cargo because you can't damage it, right? You can take a curve too fast and knock it around, and it doesn't matter because, you know, there you are. But the same truck that took your fresh food to market also is carrying your spoiled, rotting trash, I'm going to tell you this well ahead of lunch so you can recover. (laughs) One university food science professor said that it was like serving potato salad from your cat's litter box. There's an image to stick in your head. Well, mixing clean things with contaminated things doesn't make the contaminated things cleaner, does it? It makes the clean things contaminated. And that's what was happening spiritually in Thyatira. In your spiritual life, if you take your holy practices, as wonderful as they are, and when you mix unholy practices, it results in spiritual corruption. And that's where we are with Thyatira. They allowed contamination, which led to rather deep corruption. Now, Thyatira, if we can, we're going to glance at that map again. We're going clockwise. Kind of moved over a little farther east and up there at that top right. And it was the least important of the seven cities commercially. It had a very open location. You know, it wasn't hemmed in like next week when we talk about Sardis. It was up kind of the big mountains and fortress-like setting. So it was well defensible. Not so with Thyatira, susceptible to being conquered. And so they would feel vulnerable because, you know, next group comes in, conquers them. And so I don't know if that's what would lead to the idolatry that would happen there. That was a big deal. But because they were in this open location and they could be so easily invaded, Thyatira's main industry was textiles and metalwork. You probably remember in Acts 16, Lydia, you know, seller of purple fabrics. She was from Thyatira. So, see, it's not all bad. We have a notable woman in the New Testament church that came from there. But because you have industry like metalwork and and textiles, you have artisans. And they, when you have artisans, they get together in these guilds. We kind of talked about guilds in other church cities too. But they had the most guilds, trade guilds, of any uh, of the places that we've looked at in in the new these seven churches in Tur- what is today Turkey, and so these guilds, of course, had lots of patron deities, and patron deities have to have feasts and sacrifices, and so you're doing fabric work, you're doing metal work, you are supposed to be part of these trade guilds. So now you're a Christian, and you're you know what goes on at these guild feasts. That's a problem. 
But not only that, they were, since they had these different patron deities, and maybe partly because they felt so vulnerable, they would have lots and lots of gods that they would worship. And in true Roman fashion, they would say, you know, you can worship any and all of these gods just so long, and here's the key word for today, you're tolerant. Tolerance not all bad, but in this case, they tolerated way too much. So you had to tolerate other gods. And that again, like I said last week, when Antipas was killed for not offering that pinch of incense and saying Caesar is Lord, because, you know, they didn't care if the Christians worshiped God. They just had to also worship Caesar. They had to tolerate other gods, not run around saying, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You can't say that. That's too exclusive, they say. We say today, don't we? Okay, they may not throw you out of your job. Well, maybe they would today. But they that's what they feel like. You have to, in Thyatira, the city, the secular side, tolerant of other gods. And they also sought a female occultic oracle of Sybil. And maybe you've heard that that name, but you know, this was, they go and they, and they t- predict the future and tell them secret knowledge. And that's going to come up when we read through the passage. So we have lots of spiritual challenges in Thyatira. So let's look in Revelation chapter two, verse 18 to the angel of the third of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And by the way, this is the longest of the letters to the seven churches. So Jesus describes himself for each church in some those symbols and those pictures drawn from Revelation chapter 1. And so he picks the blazing eyes. We saw that in chapter 1. And bronze feet. So blazing eyes is that, that penetrating uh, vision that Jesus has to the depths of your soul. Jesus can see deeply into every part of who you are and what you've done. And that was true back then. So he wants them to know, I'm discerning. I can discern your hearts because there's a lot of good stuff going on in this church. It's going to need some discernment. Jesus also describes himself with these shiny, glowing bronze feet, right? Well, kind of an appropriate picture, don't you think, for a church where metalwork is one of the leading industries? And so these bronze, you know, kind of glowing feet are also given a picture of of Jesus trampling evil. And so he sees and discerns, and then he's able to judge and trample on that evil with, with like iron, bronze, glowing feet. So there's a picture of Jesus is aware, and that's our first point. God sees. God sees evil, and he will respond to it. Now, maybe not as soon as we like or the way that we would like, but God does see evil. Don't think that he doesn't, and he will respond to evil even if it isn't in our timetable. So let me ask you this morning, what do Jesus' blazing eyes see in you? Think about it. If he looks and he can discern with those blazing eyes to the very depths of your heart, what does he see in you? Is there something you'd want to hide? Which, of course, you know you can't because he can see it all. But what would you hide if you could from the eyes of Jesus? I remember as a youth pastor, uh, someone said, you know, God, like, you know, we get to heaven, he'll show a video of our life. And she went, oh, no. 
my parents are going to see. Think of all the people that will see my life on video. What would you not want God to see if you could hide it from him? But I'd like to say something that sounds less ominous because God, you're like, I want to hide it from him. He's going to punish me. He's going to throw a bolt of lightning down on me. God wants you to say, I see it. I want you to give it to me. I'm not there to zap you or or harm you. I'm here to help you and heal you. And God wants you to share that with him so that he can help you through that problem. Don't hide it because it just gets worse. He wants to help you, not harm you. Verse 19, Revelation 2. I know your deeds. Now, I want you to notice all of the positives about this church. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So they're like increasing, they're growing in the positives. So like the church in Ephesus, that was our first one, Jesus commends their faithful service, their serving. He commends their trust. He commends their perseverance because it can't be easy living in that kind of a climate of all those deities and all that pressure. But unlike the church in Ephesus, Thyatira was a warm and accepting church. So all of the benefits of Thyatira, only not the, I mean of uh, Ephesus, but not the limitation. They they, They weren't accused of leaving their first love. They were a warm and caring and accepting church, overflowing with the love of the Lord. And they're increasing in these things. They're not stuck and just saying, well, we'll just coast on in. We got it down. We've been around. We're doing it right. So let's just stay like we are. They kept growing. They were involved in other people's lives. Really more than many of the other seven churches. Sounds like a great church, right? If I hadn't given you that setup with the horrible image before your lunch. And so you get there, there's ways to serve, people are loving, it's caring, they're, they're warm and inviting, they trust God, they persevere when persecuted. And so we can learn from them that God values, number two, love and service. This is all on your outline in your bulletin, by the way. God values love and God values service, and he commends them for that. When the English government some in the 1800s, wanted to reward Charles Gordon for distinguished service in China. Charles Gordon declined all money and titles. After much urging, he accepted a gold medal inscribed with his name and a record of all of his accomplishments. But following his death, they went through his things, and they couldn't find where the gold medal is, all that he ever had said he would receive for all of that. And they discovered when they looked in his diary that day uh, that he had given that gold medal to Manchester, England, during a famine to be melted down to buy bread for the poor who were starving. In his private diary, he wrote this that day, The only thing I had in this world that I valued, I have now given to the Lord Jesus. Imagine that. What a heart. But God wired us to give of ourselves. I think Charles Gordon went to his grave knowing he had impact. And even the impact that was honored on a medal wasn't more important than taking care of people. There was love, there was service, there was perseverance in Charles Gordon's life. 
we sometimes get too busy. We get too busy, we get too tired, and we don't really want to use our spiritual gift. I mean, i got too many other things to do. I don't have time for these relationships. Don't make me go to some small group and take an evening out of my schedule and have to open up to other people. And so, you know, God wired us to need relationship and impact, which gives us purpose, connection and purpose. But sometimes we let our schedule, we let our life choices crowd that away. So do you feel like something's missing in your life? Now, you might be busy, maybe not, but you, you need that nourishment and you need a fulfilling purpose. And so what the church at Thyatira shows us is that you need those things and you can do those things even when there's a lot of pressure on you, even when those around you are very different. And you've got to admit, in our country, it's getting worse and worse Being a Christian is less easy than maybe it was a generation or two ago. But God says, you need relationship and you need impact. So come to me. And he commends them. But, verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So one thing, only one thing does God name about Thyatira, but boy, it's a big one. Some of the other churches, he had more to say, more of a list, but this was a rather deep and troublesome issue to be accused of. Now, Jezebel, they tolerated Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Because obviously, Old Testament Jezebel isn't alive anymore. So that Jezebel in the Old Testament is an image and a picture of something that's still plaguing the New Testament church. So back in 1 Kings 16, it says that Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel was from the Phoenician, like Tyre and Sidon, up on the coast. Uh, The Phoenicians were the seafaring people, very powerful because of the trade. And she brought the, the patron deities, which were not new deities, to the Canaan land. It was Baal, of course, and Baal's consort called Asherah. And Israel would have been struggling for these two god and goddess, because Asherah was a female deity, for a long time. But here comes the king, and he has this political marriage to to Jezebel, because her father, you know, it was an arranged marriage. Don't know if it was, you know, they wanted each other or not. It did. No one asked that kind of question back then. It was a, a marriage of convenience and a marriage to advance their cause. And so Jezebel was a very strong woman, and so she brought her god and goddess with her, Baal and Asherah, and these two god and goddesses, because Baal was a god of fertility, and so some of what they would do in sacrificing, they would also have sexual immorality, a fertility, right, right? So associated with that, and so worship of Baal and Asherah often involved uh, not just idolatry, but a cultic prostitution, just like we struggled last week with Pergamos. So, idolatry, immorality linked together. Jezebel was an angry, aggressive, domineering, vicious woman who tried to stamp out worship of Yahweh by destroying his prophets. Especially, remember, this is the story where Elijah in 17 and so hides away from 
from Jezebel. And, and Ahab is not exactly, I mean, he was a very successful king who reigned a long time, had military victories, so you can't say he was some little weak man who couldn't do anything because he was quite the military commander. But in affairs of the heart with his marriage and more importantly with his spiritual walk, Ahab was very passive, very weak, and he let Jezebel run all over him. If you don't believe it, then read the story of Naboth and how he couldn't get this vineyard he wanted and she got it through hook and crook. But so here's this woman whose husband is not being a spiritual leader in the home. She's the one who's running things, running the show, running the kingdom even of Israel. And so we have that image that goes to Thyatira now. So this Jezebel, they don't name her by name, claims to be a prophet. She's declaring God's very word, she says. So remember, if you're in one of these guilds to earn a living, you're under pressure to go to the guild feasts. And they had a lot of not-so-pleasant things. So here's one person's rendition of Jezebel's teaching on liberty. Because remember, if she's a prophet, she's, kind of, she's leading the church in, in many of these ways. And so she, this dynamic is not really a very good. A passive, permissive congregation in a city that reveres a female oracle named Sybil. And so now they let this woman teach and lead a whole church. So more than Pergamos or Pergamum, whichever your Bible has, this church had gone farther because this woman was leading the church. So she claims to be a prophet. So here's the take on her, her liberty. She, she might say something like this. Don't worry that the social activities of the guild include worship of pagan gods, Don't be concerned that the dinners begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as an offering to a pagan deity. Don't think about the meat you eat and that it's been offered to an idol. These gods, they're not real gods anyway. So there's really no, if they're not real gods, what's the harm? There's no harm. There's no unfaithfulness in participating to a god that isn't a god. So don't be concerned about the drunkenness or the sex, cultic prostitution afterward, because God in his grace will understand that you need to survive in this pagan environment, and he will forgive you. You ever hear that kind of reasoning? Maybe updated in a modern thing. Look, God's a God of grace. He'll forgive you, and he will in Jesus Christ. But that is not a license to sin, is it? And that's what she's using it for. She's perverting the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, but God does not continue to forgive the people who are going to continue to say, yeah, sure, forgive me, but they don't really mean it because they intend to keep on doing what they're doing. And so that's what Jezebel is trying to encourage them to do. Hyper grace, false grace, really. And the spirit of Jezebel lures people into compromise and corrupting their relationship with God. It happens today. You know, in a lot of churches, if you have a lot of singles in the churches, you know they're woefully unaware about uh, what sexual immorality, the prohibitions in the New Testament against it. And they go, oh, that's outdated. That's old. And having done premarital counseling for decades, I'm telling you, Christians are falling to that lie that's perpetuated in the media and not taught in churches that sex be outside of marriage before 
is wrong before marriage, outside of your marriage when you're married. It's all wrong. There's no way. And in fact, I was thinking as I was driving up, there's a, a major denomination. It's probably 20 years ago that had a subcommittee that was actually trying to propose to this denomination. It didn't pass, but they, the thought that they would even propose that adultery would be okay as long as you were still taking care of your family and faithful to your family. Not, this is not some cult. It was a major denomination that I'm not going to name. So where are we, folks, when our culture, even in the church, is trying to find ways to go, it's unrealistic for a man and a woman to stay married their whole life and stay faithful. But it's not unrealistic, is it? So we don't talk about that. So it's even around us. The spirit of Jezebel, I think, still lives. Well, anyway, those who are in the church who might disagree with Jezebel, they won't take a stand against her. That's the problem. Not just that she's there. They're tolerating it. They're allowing it. They're not taking a stand. So in a church that's known for their love and their caring, they are too tolerant of even heresy and immorality. So a peaceful congregation is a good thing, but not when peace comes at the price of righteousness. The most peaceful place in town is the cemetery. Think about that. So here's a peaceful, we don't want conflict, we don't want trouble, we just let whatever happens happen. So many churches, and I've seen this in my ministry, also a discouraging thing. Somebody who is a great pastor and he's a dynamic speaker and the church literally grows by the thousands, he has a moral failing and the church tries to deal with it, and then some other church is just waiting to take this person because, you know, he'll attract new people. But the character is bad. I had a church once that that told me I was looking for a job. You know, we kind of got it down to two guys, and you're not one of them, but one guy is a dynamic speaker, but his character we're not quite so sure about. The other guy's an okay speaker, but he's got solid character. I thought, thank you, Jesus, that you never took me to that church. If a search committee is sitting there trying to decide between performance and character, what does that say about the church? And so we have this in our culture. We get so tolerant, we're afraid to get somebody upset so we don't do anything. But we have people that are different than that, no longer with us, Billy Graham. You know... He had so many occasions and setups where people would try, have some photographer in a hotel room with some woman ready to take the picture and, and threaten him and that he'd have to have a whole team of people go in and into rooms before he went in because of that kind of stuff. But he never fell. He, somebody you say, who is an example of a, of a person that, that for, for decades with a lot of fame and a lot of, not so much fortune, but a lot of people who thought, you know, he was the greatest, it would be easy to fall. But they asked him, how have you done it toward the end of his life? And he said, I live by three rules. Don't touch the ladies. Don't touch the money. Don't touch the glory. Those are big temptations, aren't they? Especially that last one, by the way. Successful whether business, but pastors, evangelists, whatever, they get so successful, they start touching the glory. Sometimes we don't want to challenge a wrong belief or a wrong behavior because we think we'll offend, we'll cause tension in the church. So we think it's better to do nothing 
than risk alienating somebody. I hope you can read these verses and see how God disagrees with that. God doesn't want disunity. Remember, that's what Jesus prayed for, but not at the expense of unrighteousness, immorality, idolatry, horrible character. So here's what God says about this church. Verse 22, So I will cast her, that's Jezebel, on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And probably not just physical adultery, spiritual adultery. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Remember that blazing eyes in verse 18, that opening verse to this church? I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So lest we think that, you know, well, you know, the Old Testament God was angry and grumpy and he got over it and now he's nice in the New Testament. You reading this? This is in the New Testament, right? The very last book. That God still is a God of holiness and righteousness and a God of love and mercy. But now you're seeing a different side of God. This is the, the side of God when Jesus comes again and how he will even now discipline his church. So the consequences for Jezebel and her followers, a bed of suffering. Perhaps referring to the reclining couches at these guild feasts. Maybe the very bed on which they're committing this cultic adultery will become their bed of punishment. I don't know all of what that means. But I can tell you that suffering is a wake-up call from God. Not always to punish those who are doing wrong, but to get our attention to mold our, our character in a way that we'll start to turn to him. And so suffering is God's tool, and maybe, hopefully, he's using it here to bring them to repentance, because that's what he's saying. Repent. But Thyatira did not repent. The church vanished a few centuries later, one of the earliest to go. It would become a stronghold of a major third-century heresy with false prophetesses. Interesting that Jezebel, the false prophetess, and the church falls with further false prophetesses, and the church ceased to resemble Jesus. So number three, God expects us to guard against corruption. He sees evil, he will respond to it. He values our love and service, but he does expect us to stand against wrong. So what are you living for? Because whatever makes your life worthwhile, that's your God. So you say, I'm living for this. What do you stand for? Does your life show that you live for that? Do your beliefs and your actions, do they match up? Do you find it hard to challenge the people around you if you see them doing something wrong and they're a friend? Do you say something or think, no, they won't be my friend anymore? Do you challenge wrong beliefs? Do you challenge destructive behaviors? Do you keep peace at any price, including truth and righteousness by being passive? God expects us to guard against corruption. He expects us to honor his holiness just as much as we honor his grace and love. And now verse 24 says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, so there were some, 
and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. So hold on is still holding on to that progressing, that growing in love and service and perseverance. Keep doing what you're doing good, only now you need to not dip in to what Jezebel's doing and don't even tolerate her around because she's taking you all down. And he promises in verse 26, to the one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one, I think, means the overcomer will rule with them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, a prophetic quote from the Old Testament. And just as I have received authority from my father. So overcomers, those in Thyatira who do not participate in Jezebel's things and her activities, who haven't contaminated their soul with Jezebel's corruption. Overcomers also don't seek for secret knowledge or power. That's what I think back in that previous verse 25 when it talked about Satan's so-called deep secrets. And so what, is, what, do you, what might that refer to? A lot of people, I think, take the occult and just think of it as a game. Kind of an interesting thing for this week, don't you think? And I'm not making anti-Halloween statements. What I'm saying is, think about the activities that you participate in. Some people say, well, I read my horoscope every day. It's kind of fun. You know it has an occultic root, right? You know that the idea of a horoscope is to look to the stars to tell your future. And God calls that divination. So it's like, I don't want to trust God for my future. I want to, I want to look at you know, what some spiritist tells me might happen. You begin dabbling in the occult, and I think you open a door to Satan to oppress you in your life. And you shouldn't be dabbling in any of these things. You shouldn't be going to palm readers, spiritists. We had a guy that was doing our African refugee school in Egypt, and some of the Africans, because it was mostly African, all uh, African, sub-Saharan African refugees. And so one of the, some of them got mad, and so they put this curse on him with chicken bones. He found them outside his door. And, you know, you kind of laugh like, all that. But, I mean, these are people who are, this is a Christian school. What are Christians doing putting, trying to put some spell on a guy they don't like how he's running the school? So curses, spells, horoscopes, fortune tellers, these activities open a door to Satan in your life and really best stay away from them and not open that door. Because what they are about is saying, I want secret knowledge, I want secret power that I can use to advance in my life. And isn't that kind of a, I don't really trust God, I have to go outside of him like King Saul? Well, Jesus' first reward to these overcomers is authority over the nations. Psalm 2 talks a lot about that. So imagine, these are people that are living in the smallest, least significant city of Asia Minor of the seven churches. And they are given one of the greatest rewards of ruling in God's kingdom. Being a part of what Jesus, when he comes again, they will be part of that. Also says in verse 28, I will give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The second reward for these overcomers is the morning star. 
You know the morning star, right? You hear, if you've been up at dawn, I know a lot of you are up at dawn, especially you're up to take care of your job. And you see that morning star, but right before the dawn, they say it's super dark. It's the darkest part of the night. And then that's, that morning star comes up. And it's just this light, this glowing, wonderful light that's saying the sun is coming. And so that's the picture. In the midst of all of this darkness, in the midst of all of this corruption, pressuring them and surrounding them, Jesus promises to be their light, to sustain them and be with them. So the morning star to the overcomers, he will bring light to to hold on, push away the corruption. Don't give in to the night. So number four in your outline, God rewards those who persevere. So, I'll close with this illustration. Two identical acorns from the same oak tree. Plant one on an exposed hill and the other in a well-tended garden. And then compare their growth over the years. The oak on the hill, it's exposed to every storm that comes along. And while those storms are buffeting it, while the cold is attacking it like this morning or the heat like in in August, drought, This thing is sinking its roots down farther and deeper and looking for water, looking to stabilize and and establish and hold that tree in place. It goes deeper for nourishment, steady in the conflict. There's sometimes when you look at that oak, you think it's not growing. All the while, the roots have been pushing deeper. I was surprised to learn when I had been backpacking and I went to school in, in park administration that above right before the timber line is a little zone called the Crumholt zone and you see these little scrub bushes and you think oh those haven't been here long they're like some of the oldest things on the mountain because they're small but they're deeply rooted to find what they need and so then this struggle these trees this oak tree has survived because it's been toughened up with every fiber The acorn that's planted in the garden shoots up a tender, fragile sapling, sheltered and tended by the gardener. It doesn't have to work very hard at spreading its roots very deep for support. There's easy food and water right there at the surface in its comfortable environment. I have a big Colorado blue spruce in my yard that likes to stay with big roots up in the front yard. The mower just hates it because it doesn't have to work very hard. Its water is right there at the surface. But when a strong wind blows, or a drought lingers, or a cold blast comes, a heat wave extends, the lesser rooted oak struggles to survive. Its life inside is too weak and too shallow. The challenges of life are what strengthen the depth of our, of our faith. We are like the oak. Which oak are you? Are you the seasoned one that's gone through struggles and suffering, but you come out the other side rooted in God that no matter what you face and what happens, you know, you know, God is walking with me. I might stumble a little bit, God's with me. Or are you looking for an easier way where your faith doesn't get tested? Lord, just keep me safe. Just take care of everything I need. Don't make me suffer. Kind of like the Smyrna problem. The seeds of our destruction, personally, Our spiritual vulnerabilities are already planted in us. Each of us 
have vulnerabilities, weaknesses that if we aren't walking with God, Satan will exploit. Might be a problem with being depressed, with being angry, with giving in to, you know, having too much or eating too much or drinking too much. But we all have seeds of our vulnerability, seeds that we walk away from a conflict. If our marriage got too difficult, we'd walk away. When I did divorce recovery, I remember saying, maybe I'm not any better at marriage than any of you who are divorced. Maybe I'm just luckier because I had a more faithful spouse that stuck with me and tolerated my problems. The seeds of our vulnerabilities are already in us. So where are you vulnerable? Do you trust that God will care for you if you stand for truth and righteousness that God gives us? Don't mean it in a mean way, not in some alienating way, but you stand firm and say, I don't believe in that. I'm not going to give in to the culture, but I'm still going to love and care for people in the midst of that, but I'm not going to give in. Are you willing to endure discomfort and discrimination for the cause of Christ? The church at Thyatira teaches us that allowing corruption in your midst is lethal to your soul and to your church. Let's pray. Lord God, these churches this last week, this week, next week, they're hard, Lord. They're hard because they see what happens. That we, we think we couldn't be there, but we could, Lord. Help us to look where we are vulnerable. Where's that area that we are hiding from your blazing eyes? that we think if we can just hold on to this for our security, that we're too afraid to launch out in a way that would stretch our faith to trust you more deeply. So help us, Lord, to see that vulnerability that Satan will exploit if he gets a chance. Show us how to stand up for who you are in our individual life and in our church, to not be a church known for pointing fingers, and railing against people without love, but a church that stands for truth and righteousness and isn't afraid to share it, but in a loving and caring way, even as we serve and minister to people. Show us how to balance that, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.